Well, good morning, church. How's everybody this morning? Yeah, great time of worship together. Wonderful songs that Brandon picked that just perfectly set the stage for our time together. And to have some of our youth up on the platform with help us worship, that's a great, I love that. I just love that. Do you have a good Christmas? Did you? Yeah, Lisa and I drove down to Orange County on Christmas Day and and uh, we're able to spend some time with our son and daughter-in-law and our our three-year-old and our two-year-old grandchildren. And really the special gift that I got this Christmas was to be able to sit down with our little three-year-old daughter and, and uh, granddaughter and, and read the Christmas nativity story in picture book form with her. And uh, that was my special gift. Uh, I had told you on Christmas Eve that that was what I was looking forward to, and the Lord gave that to me. So that was very cool. But um, I also, along with Brandon and Lynn, uh, we received a special gift from you um, this Christmas season. And I do want to, on, really on behalf of the two of them and myself, just express our thanks to you for your kindness. You are such a, a generous church family, and, and you bless us in so many ways. The cards that you wrote were so encouraging, the words in those Christmas cards. But then on top of that, the financial gift that you shared with us this Christmas was really great and perfectly timed. So most of you know that Lisa and I suffered uh, this water damage at our house a couple weeks ago. And so that gift that you gave is perfectly timed. We have some unexpected expenses. And so, um, again, thanks for that so much. Well, you're going to enjoy the word together as part of our, our day together in the Lord. Let's do that. I'll invite you to take your Bible and or your iPhone or your iPad, whatever you're traveling with this morning, and turn with me to the New Testament book of James, chapter 4. And uh, you'll have to go almost to the end of your Bible to get to that place, if you're still kind of learning the books of the Bible. James chapter 4. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand, because we keep some in the back just for this purpose, so that you can have God's Word to hold in your hands. And there's a little note page in your bulletin, if you'll grab that as well. That'll be of some help, I think, along the way. And church family, do you, do you realize that when we gather together again, a week from today, a new year will have turned, and it will be 2016. <laughs> There's a little moan kind of going, rifling through there. 2016, man, I cannot believe that. It seemed like three months ago we welcomed 2015 into our lives, and here we are looking at 2016. 16. In anticipation of a new year coming, I believe with all my heart that the Holy Spirit desires to give us a gift from his word today, a a word picture as well as a way to think as we head into this, this new year that is completely and utterly unknown to us. There's not one person in the world right now who knows what is going to happen in 2016. And that's a good thing, isn't it? I mean, I'm glad that I don't know what's coming, and I'm sure you do as well. Uh, You're grateful that you don't know. Because that is true, though, the book of James, I believe, holds a special treasure for us. See if you don't agree by the time we wrap things up a little bit later in the morning. Uh, See if God has not given you a special treasure out of James chapter 4. Now, just by way of a little bit of background for this book that I've invited you into... James wrote this letter that bears his name so that professing Christians would have a way to assess the health of their faith in Jesus, a way to look at 
how they are living and be able to, uh, as they examine their life, be able to authenticate or validate or verify that their relationship with God is real. That's why he wrote the book. In in effect, he says, look, if you want to know if you are really the follower of Jesus that you think you are or say that you are, evaluate your life in several key areas. Because a faith that talks but does not walk, it's all words but, but no action, is really a faith that doesn't work at all. And James is all about a difference-making faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and it works. It works in all areas, areas of your life. And so in the chapters leading up to where we're going to be hanging out in chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, in those chapters leading up to that place, James invites his first century readers and then us as well to honestly examine our lives in a number of areas. He will ask us to think about how we handle, for example, persecution and ridicule for loving Jesus. How do we handle that? Do we, do we bear up under that or do we cave in? He addresses that question in chapter 1. He'll ask us about how well we resist temptation to sin, how, how, how obedience to God's word plays out in our lives. Are we just hearers of the word or do we do the word? That's a, that's a test that we can apply to our lives, and, and James brings that up. Is the sin of prejudice present in my life? Am I prejudiced towards other persons? Um, that's a place I need to examine my life. Is Jesus really living out of that place? Where do I land with regards to compassion uh, towards the needs of others? Uh, does my faith translate into loving, real care that makes a difference in the lives of other people? Or is it just words? There's a test there that you can take, and James brings that out. How do I control my tongue? How is my speech? Does it reflect the person of Jesus? Or does it reflect a relationship with, with a holy God? We could think about that in this book. Very practical arenas of our daily life. Is Jesus in those areas in difference-making ways? Does our faith walk or does it just talk? James's book is all about that. And so it is that with verses 13 and following of chapter 4, James wants to take us into yet another place where we can evaluate whether we are really living out uh, our Christian life. Am I following Jesus? Am I God-dependent? Or am I self-reliant? Am I arrogantly relying on myself when it comes to how I plan my future, how I think about my days and what I'm going to do with my life? Am I God-dependent? Am I a Jesus follower? Or am I an arrogant, self-reliant person who just, who just does it on his own? This is the test we get to take in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 4. Let me read this passage for us. You follow along in your Bible. Here's what James writes. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. 
Short little passage, but it has all that we'll handle and can handle really for this time together. Let me pray and just ask the Lord to bless. And Father, we thank you so much for your word. Holy Spirit, you moved the heart of James. You put down your heart on the printed page using James to do that. And so, Holy Spirit, who better than you to ask to take us into this this short little section and let us not just be hearers of your word, but doers of it as well. We give you these moments. You teach. We'll hopefully be good students by your power and grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you might know the name Tim Hansel. Uh, In his book, Holy Sweat, honest to goodness, that's the title, Holy Sweat, he writes briefly about his relationship with Jesus, only he does so using a creative word picture that I really identified with and thought I would share it with you. And as you listen, I, I wonder if your faith story would be similar to his. And if it's not, James would say to each of us, it ought to be our faith story. Tim writes, Before I found Jesus, or better, before he found me, I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things that I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was out there sort of like, well, like the president. But later on, when I met Jesus, it seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride. But it was a tandem bike, and I noticed that Christ was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested that we change places. But life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring, but predictable. It was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the handlebars, he knew delightful long cuts up mountains and through rocky places at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on. Even though it looked like madness, he said, Pedal! (laughs) I worried and was anxious and asked, Where are you taking me? He laughed and didn't answer and started to, and I started to learn to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure. And when I'd say, I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. He took me to people with gifts that I needed, gifts that that helped heal me, gifts of acceptance and joy. They gave me gifts to take on my journey with Jesus. And then we were off again. He said, give the gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight. And so I did to the people we met. And I found that in giving, I received, and still our burden was light. I did not trust him at first in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it, but he knows bike secrets, knows how to lean into the sharp corners, knows how to jump to clear high rocks, knows how to soar to shorten scary places. And I'm learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful constant companion. And when I'm sure I just can't do any more, He just smiles and says, you pedal, I'll steer. Isn't that good? I really relate to that. I really like that word picture. For James, 
a God-dependent, God-trusting, Jesus-steering life is yet one more authenticating, validating test of faith that we can claim that we can claim. Is, is, my, is my faith real? Am I, am I letting Jesus have the handlebars of my life? We pedal, he steers. We trust, he chooses the way. We depend on him, he directs our steps. Is that how it is playing out in my life? Or do I just talk like it is? Does he really have the handlebars? That's the question we want to ask this morning. That's where we're going to go. Because you see, on the flip side, a life lived with white-knuckled death grip on the handlebars of your life, refusing to relinquish control, that is a for sure indicator, brothers and sisters, of the presence in our life of pride and self-reliance and a lack of trust in our God. Would you agree with that? Sure. It's tantamount to saying, God, I've got this, but thanks for your offer of help. Right? Never a good idea. And, of course, we would never say it like that, but we can sometimes without even being aware of it slip into the place of living like that. God, I've got the handlebars, but thanks for the offer of your help. Now, the way that James will tackle this subject of living a God-dependent, Jesus-you-steer life is by using a a very earthy, practical example of a businessman or a businesswoman and their approach to their life and their future. Uh, And he'll use this example to impress upon us the dangers, the, the hazards of professing to be a Jesus follower, but living like you've got the handlebars. And then in the middle of this, this example that he gives us, James is going to drop a sparkling little jewel of truth that could be a real help to us. I mean a real tangible help to us as we look forward into an unknown and uncertain 2016. So on your note page, James James begins by pointing out the foolishness. The foolishness of a leaving God out of your life lifestyle. And once again, he writes, verse 13, Come now, or maybe your version says, Now listen. James is the only New Testament writer who uses this expression. It is a, it is a brash, uh, rather harsh word in New Testament Greek. And it, it means, get this. Don't miss this. Listen up, you guys. That's what this word means. Listen up, you who say. And, and again, keep in mind that he is writing to professing Christians that he knows. He's not writing to the, uh, to the person who isn't following him. He's writing to those who do. Now listen up, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James is about to take to task any professing Christian who consistently, as a life pattern, a lifestyle, makes plans, even shares those plans with others, but does so as if God really wasn't in the picture. That's who he's writing to. God's not consulted. God is not sought out. God is not prayed to. God is not invited to the plans. This person claims to know Jesus, but takes an I'm going to steer this by myself approach. James's readers would have instantly connected with his example as well. 
Many of those whom he writes had been in the church that he pastored in Jerusalem. But because of persecution, many of them had been driven from there to all over the ancient Mediterranean world. And some of these Christians were successful business people, merchants and traders, and and they've settled in, in, in thriving locations, and they are doing business. Now, that, of course, is not the problem. I hope we understand that. That's not the problem. Wise planning and and strategizing in in business isn't wrong. It's not sinful. As a matter of fact, the book of Proverbs, it repeatedly commends sound thinking and and careful planning in all areas of our life, not just in the business world. The persons in James' illustrations have not done anything wrong insofar as running their business goes. It's what they fail to do that James has issue with. They did extensive planning, but in the course of their planning, they totally left who out? God. They left God out. He's not part of their plan. He's not being consulted to see if their future plans fit into his plans for them. They've got the handlebars. What we see is a clear picture of the sin of a misplaced confidence and a presumptuous pride. And we see that in no less than five different ways in verse 13. Check this out. Once again, look at that verse in your Bible. First, these Christians choose their own time, today or tomorrow. And the key word here is own, their own time. They're not consulting God. This is all on their own. They choose their own time, today or tomorrow. Second, they chose their own location. We will go into such and such a town. Third, they chose their own timeline. We'll spend a year there. Fourth, they chose their own method, carry on business, and then they finally chose their own objective. They were going to make money. And again, just so we're clear, James has no problem with any of these things in and of themselves, including the making of money. What's the problem? It's the word, their own time, their their own location. It's the fact that all of this is done to the exclusion of their God with no looking to him, interacting with him, involving him, consulting him, they've got the handlebars. They presumptuously make plans as if they know everything and as if they're in control of all the variables and they make their plans as if those can't be changed. This is what we're going to do. This is the plan. And James would say, stop. Time out, Christian. That's foolish. In fact, it's more than foolish. It's downright dangerous. On one occasion, Jesus told a story. There were thousands of people who had gathered around him, and they loved to hear him tell parables. And James might well have been thinking about this particular parable as he writes the words that we're sharing here out of chapter 4. It's found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'm going to read this little parable for us, and you can just listen along. And it's a parable that points out how precarious things really are for anyone who presumes to leave God out of, your, out of their life. Here's what Jesus says. He told them the parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself. So it's just he's just got himself in view. What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. 
I will tear down my barns and build large ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. We know that phrase, don't we? Verse 20, but God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God or does not include God. James would say, come on, my dear brothers and sisters, leaving your God out of your planning and your decision making is utterly foolish. Why? Well, look at verse 14. We get two reasons for why that is foolish. And these are two reasons that are hard to refute. They're on your note page. First, Just like the rich fool in Jesus' parable, verse 14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Is that true? Man, that is true. You have no clue what your future holds. Not next year, not next month, not next week, not tomorrow, not even the next hour, not even the the, the five minutes that are around the corner of your life do you know what's going to happen. Well, I had this truth driven home to me in a truly powerful, sobering way more than 30 years ago here in our church family. On the Sunday before Christmas, our morning service had concluded and I was in the back in the foyer and I was greeting my friends as, as I, I always do on a Sunday morning and was greeting my friends as they were going out. And Bill, a solid Christian man with a family, was walking by and and he was all excited. He was all excited about a new vocational opportunity that was opening up for him. I, I had not seen Bill this animated in a, in a long, long time, maybe never. And so he just saw this, this opportunity as a really great thing, and he was very much looking forward to it. I wished him a Merry Christmas. And the next morning, which was my day off, I'm at home, and I get a call at my house Bill had been working outside alone in the forest, and somehow his pickup truck had slipped out of gear, rolled backwards, and pinned him against a tree. Well, I officiated Bill's funeral the day after Christmas. Verse 14, why you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. It is so true, isn't it? So true. On your note page, Proverbs 27.1 is the Old Testament version, really, of what James says. Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. In this life, the truth is we have no real control, right? I mean, we have the illusion of control, but we really have none. It is impossible for anyone to design or assure a specific future for themselves, let alone for anybody else. And yet many foolishly imagine that they are large and in charge. We might be large, but we're not in charge. It's just not true. And then in the same verse, James gives a second reason why those Tempted to leave God out of their planning and decision-making are utterly foolish. Here's what the second half of verse 14 says. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. How does that make you feel, Christian? (laughs) You're just a mist. 
that is here for a moment. Your life is incredibly brief, James says. Tomorrow is unknown and life is short. Your life is like a fleeting mist. It's like the the wisp of vapor off of your coffee cup. That's what it's like. It's that short. In fact, there are several other word pictures from our Bibles that, 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 that really lay, lay up the same kind of a truth. You're like a flower that is cut down there on your note page, like a cloud that disappears, it's gone, like a shadow that does not remain, like an eagle that swoops down on its prey, it's that quick, like the dew on the ground at morning, but it's burned off by 9 o'clock. Like smoke out of a chimney, Hosea 13.3 says. That's, that's how brief your life, my life is. James says, come on, listen up, get this. Honestly, your ignorance of what the future holds and the brevity of your life should all by themselves, those two truths should by themselves give you cause to pause and to realize how foolish it is to leave God out of your plan. You'll be the loser for sure on every level. And then if you flip that note page over that you have, James adds in verse 16, we jump over verse 15 for a moment. In verse 16 he says, not only is a God-independent life and I'm going to steer this bike myself lifestyle foolish, it's also arrogant. It's incredibly arrogant to think like that, especially as a follower of Jesus. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is what? It's evil. You boast about all that you're going to do. It's evil. In light of the fact that you have no clue what your future holds and in light of the fact that you don't even know what the next hour is going to bring or whether you even get to have another hour, in light of all of that, it's the height of pride that you would have no thought of God's will in your life and you would leave him out of your plans. Are we hearing, James? Yeah. The word James uses in verse 16 for boast, it means to, to, to be loud-mouthed. And the word arrogant, maybe your version uses the word brag. Mine says arrogant. But that's a word that in James's day was often used to describe a con artist. Who, who tried to sell phony goods to unsuspecting people. And, and so what they do is really paint a false picture to try to fool people. And so when James puts those two words together, boast and arrogant, together in verse 16, it pictures someone who is bragging presumptuously about something uh, in their future that they really don't have any control over, but they want to project the image of control. But it's all... It's all just phony smoke and mirrors, imaginary control. It's not real. It's just pride and presumption and arrogance. As a Christian, and remember again, James is writing to professing Christians. Sometimes we don't want to include God on in our plans and our decisions simply because we want to do it our way, right? We just want to keep our hands on the handlebar. And James said, such foolishness and arrogant pride isn't just an unfortunate thing. What's his word again at the end of verse 16? It's evil. It's, it's sin. He uses that word, evil, to, to drive home the, the force. Proverbs 16.9 says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before what? That's, that's just verse 16 
rephrased, isn't it? The far better, more God-glorifying way is what Peter will say in his little letter of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. In fact, you suppose we could just, as a church family, read these, these words right off the screen together? Let's do that. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Humble yourselves. That has to do with our heart, doesn't it? That has to do with our attitude towards God. Humble yourselves at the proper time. Well, that has to do with our future, that part of our life that we don't know anything about. Humble yourselves at the proper time. Peter says, humbly bring God into every plan, every purpose, every dream and desire that you have, and he will replace any anxiety that you have. And all of our anxiety has to do with things that are yet to be. We're worried about things we we don't know about yet. And here here it says, bring those to God, and God will give you his settled peace, a sense of security and confidence because you know that God cares for you, that he loves you, and that he has the handlebars of your life. You relinquish them to him, and with that comes a peace and a security that cannot be taken no matter what circumstances might be waiting for you in this year that is just in front of us. Now, this is exactly where James wants to go now with verse 15. We jumped over that verse. I had mentioned earlier that inserted smack dab in the middle of this foolishness, this arrogance, this this pride of failing to bring God and the Lord Jesus into our hopes and plans and future-focused dreams, I said there was a, a sparkling little jewel of truth. Well, that little jewel is verse 15. Allow me to read the whole section here again one more time. Verses 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Brothers and sisters, if verse 13, verse 14, and verse 16 reflect the foolishness of a leaving God out lifestyle, well then verse 15 represents the peace of an always bringing God in lifestyle. There is a God-dependent, Jesus-you-steer lifestyle captured in verse 15. It's right there. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. That's a, Jesus, you steer my life. I'm good with that lifestyle. Those aren't the words of arrogance. Those are the words of humility in verse 15. And verse 15 only happens in the life of somebody who has determined that their life is really not all about them. It's about who? It's about God. First and foremost, it's not, about, it's not about me, it's about him. When in humility it's all about him and he's what really matters, when it's all about his will, his involvement in my life, for his glory, when every decision is made and every plan is conceived with the goal of, of God being glorified through it, well, that's humility. 
And that's a Christian living, always bringing God into my life kind of a lifestyle. In fact, verse 13 works just great. Saying, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there in trade and make a profit. Verse 13 works great, church family, so long as those words are preceded by verse 15, right? And so long as they are chased immediately by verse 15. Then verse 13 works. If this plan is not the Lord's best for me and, and, and those around me, and, and if it won't glorify my God, then, then I will change my plan. I will alter my decision. I will do whatever affirms and, and, and whatever you direct. Lord, I will do that. That's the heart that God is looking for from you and me as we stand on the edge of a brand new year. If the Lord wills, I will do this or I will do that. Do you, do, you, do you see where James is at here? you sense this? There are many other places in our Bible where this, this heart, this perspective is reflected. It's the same truth, just worded a little bit differently. For example, in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, these are great words for a new year. Many of you have memorized these verses. They might even be your life verses. Can we read them aloud together? Let's do it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. What is that? That's Jesus. You steer. I'll pedal, right? That's what that is. Or how about Philippians 4, 6, and 7? Do not be anxious about anything. What is that? Anxious about anything? That has to do with the future, doesn't it? We get We are anxious and worried about things we don't know about in the future. Do not be anxious about anything in your future, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. If it's the Lord's will, right? If the Lord wills. And the, what's the reward for doing that? Peace. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus, I'll pedal, you steer. That's what that, those two verses are saying. Or, or take 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you plan, do it all for what? To the glory of God. That's just another way of saying, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. But only if he wills. Because God is glorified by that. It's all about him. And with that comes a peace that can't be taken away. Brothers and sisters, this this humble submission, this if the Lord wills heart, isn't just now for the the plans and purposes that we might want to make or be involved in. It goes way beyond that. These words, if the Lord wills, take in all of those places where we would not ever want to go. Plans we would never make, but life brings them to us anyway. If the Lord wills is just as important for the the issues and the events and the circumstances that we would never choose for ourselves. Just as important for that as for all the plans that we might choose to make. Let me illustrate it with this true story. 
None of the passengers on the DC-4 airplane ever knew what happened. They all died instantly. The date was February the 15th, 1947. The Avianca airline flight bound for Quito, Ecuador, slammed into the 14,000-foot towering peak called El Tablazo. The plane rolled down, tumbled down in a fiery mass of twisted steel down deep into a ravine far below the impact point of the plane crash. On that plane was a young New Yorker by the name of Glenn Chambers. He was one of the passengers. He was on that flight as part of a lifelong plan that he had to be part of the sharing the gospel through a ministry called the Voice of the Andes. And he was on his way to become part of the missions team that was working with radio in those days to bring the gospel to the people of, of, that, of that whole area of South America. All of his plans, all of his preparation, all of his sacrifice came to a sudden end in one unexpected, unforeseen millisecond in that plane crash. But there's more to the story. Before leaving the Miami airport earlier that day, Glenn had hurriedly dashed off a note to his mother on a piece of paper that he found on the floor of the airport terminal. That scrap of paper was, was a once printed piece of advertising and it had the single word on it, why, with a big question mark. That was was on the front of this piece of paper. And so uh, he wrote his note on the back, slipped it into the envelope and dropped it in the airport mailbox. Between the mailing and the delivery to his mother, he was killed. His mom got the news about the crash before that letter arrived. When she received the unexpected letter a few days later, there staring at, uh, at her as she opened it up was this haunting question, why? She had asked it 10,000 times since she had been notified. She then turned the paper over and this is what Glenn had written. He had scrawled it hastily onto this back of this little piece of paper. These three things. God is too kind to do anything cruel. He's too wise to make a mistake. And he's too deep to need to explain himself. Love to you all, Glenn. Why? Mrs. Chambers said later that she never asked why again after that day. Her son had helped her see the who behind her plan, his plans and his loss. All other sounds, brothers and sisters, are muffled when we claim God's absolute right to exercise his will his sovereignty over our lives, even the sounds of a crashing airplane, they all are muffled under God is too kind to do anything cruel. He is too wise to make a mistake and he is too deep to need to explain himself. If the Lord wills, it's the conviction, it's the oft-repeated phrase of those who are truly God-dependent not only for the things that we can plan, but for all the things that we can't plan. 
As each of us steps into 2016 this Friday, I could ask you as your pastor, but I'd much rather just ask you as my friends and as a a fellow traveler on this road with you, I would ask you to join me in making James 4.15 our daily, perhaps many times in a single day, our daily declaration to our Lord this year. I would ask you to be willing to take the time to memorize James 4.15, to, to, to set it deep into your heart and, and, and to place it in your mind so that you will not forget it. Make it your silent declaration with me. Make that commitment with me that before every decision that you make in this coming year, every plan that you would set upon, Make that a matter of, of, of bringing it to the Lord and saying, if you will, I will do this or that. You take the handlebars. I'll pedal. Say, if the Lord wills. Make it your affirmation, perhaps in this coming year, when circumstances engulf you that you did not see coming and you never would have planned for yourself. If you will. from a sincere and dependent heart. If you do this with me, because I am determined to do this, this is what I want for 2016 in my life. These words to be the first words that come to my mind, the last words that I take to bed with me. If we do this together from a sincere, dependent heart, it will ensure, I believe, that we will not get out in front of our God. It will protect us from sliding into those slippery places of arrogance and pride and and presumption, a place where God doesn't want to go and and, and we don't want to go either. And it will give us a peace that can weather any storm because you know that you have invited God in. If the Lord wills, would you be willing to make that commitment with me to memorize James 4.15? and make it a part of the fabric of your life as we step into a new year, would you be willing to do that? (laughs) Thank you, Luana. (laughs) What about the rest of you? (laughs) You know, Tim Hansel said in his story about the imaginary tandem bicycle ride with Jesus, he said, I don't know just when it was that Jesus suggested we change places. But life has not been the same since. I am learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. And I am beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful, constant companion. And when I'm sure I just can't do any more, he just smiles and says, you pedal. I'll steer. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Well, here we are, Heavenly Father, all of us in this room. We're just a few days away from a brand new year. And as often the case, uh, such markers in our lives are great places for us to resolve to do something that we have not done before. And maybe this would be our resolution corporately as a church family that that we would embrace James 4.15. We would make it our own. And it wouldn't just be words. It would be what we really do. 
we would say before all of our plans, all of our, our considerations and our thinking and ponderings that we would say, if you will, we will do this or that. But only if you will. And then, Lord, whenever we, we are blindsided by life, that we would run to this verse and we would say, if you will, and find your peace there. I pray this for my friends in this room. I pray this for me. We can't do this on our own, but you can make it so for us. And we would want this to happen in our lives for your glory most of all. Because it really is all about you. Thank you for the year that you have given us, for all the blessings of this past year. And we give our 2016 to you and for all that you will in it. And all God's people said, amen and amen.